Turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. I've been reading a book about uh, nighttime reading after the day is done. Don't anybody panic here. A book about submarines in World War II and uh, one submarine in particular and the amazing work that submarine did in and of itself in World War II. And I've been studying at the same time the Old Testament passages, Southern and Northern Kingdom of uh, Israel and Judah, and it, it occurred to me as I was doing these things simultaneously, reading about the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel is like reading about Amer American submarines in World War II attacking enemy ships. I thought, wow, what a similarity. Submarines would get a ship in its sight. This is very difficult work they had to do. Get a ship in its sight. It took a lot of doing. And then fire torpedoes at it in hopes that they could sink the enemy ship. And sometimes they would hit it, not a great hit, and it would do some damage, and it could stay afloat for a while, even a good while, a long time, maybe even make it to shore if they didn't get a very good hit. Other times they would have direct hits, and that ship could go down pretty quickly. And that's how I have come to think of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, as two ships which had been fired upon. And they're still afloat, for the time being. The question is how long are they afloat? It's only a matter of time. One ship is going to sink quicker than the other. And that pretty well sums up the spiritual decline in 2 Kings chapter 17. But let's see how that's described tonight as we look first of all at the exile of Israel. 2 Kings 17, the exile of Israel, the northern kingdom, verses 1 through 6. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Eli, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, he captured Samaria and uh, carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor and on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. The king who refused to trust the Lord, King Ahaz, mentioned in verse 1, uh, is ruling in the southern kingdom of Judah. He's in his twelfth year of his reign. That's 2 Kings 16. We talked about him last week, King Ahaz. The main focus of chapter 17 is not Judah, although they will get some negative uh, uh, comments. But the spotlight is on Israel, the northern kingdom. The king of Israel in this time is Hoshea, as you can see that in the early verses. He's self-appointed because he assassinated the former king. Never, he's not king because he was appointed to be king by others, or he was the king's son and inherited the, the throne. He assassinated someone. He's characterized as an evil person, but not as bad as the other guys before him. So he's not as bad, but is, it doesn't matter what his character is. It's immaterial. Why? Because Israel's days are numbered. Their time is up. You know, if you borrow a book from the library, they have a, or maybe they used to have, I know they still do. Everybody's laughing now because everybody's been through this experience. Uh, you you buy, borrow a book from the library, and it, and it, and it gets to where it's due. And then and you don't turn it in for whatever reason you forget. And then it's overdue. 
And then you have this grace period, right? Do they still do that? I don't know. Have the grace period and uh, to return the book. Well, Israel's had its grace period. They've had their grace period. And the judgment from God is long overdue and is going to come down on them now. So their judgment uh, is, is, is coming out in the form of Assyria. Assyria sees an opportunity. You know what they see? They see an opportunity to make money. They thought to themselves, hey, and this is what they did back then. Why don't we go after Hoshea and force him to pay tribute to us, force him to pay taxes to us? Taxes meaning we won't attack you if you pay taxes to us. We'll get your money. This is a beautiful plan by these guys if this is what you want to do back in that day. So they do this. And Assyria is all over this chapter. They are mentioned seven times, I think, in the first six verses. Everything that happens in this chapter on the human level is because of Assyria. But Hoshea tries to get out from under Assyria's control. He doesn't like this. So he decides to hook up with the king of Egypt. <clears throat> Big mistake because they're not all that powerful. Kind of a dumb move on his part. And he figures, if I can partner with, the, with Egypt against Assyria, then maybe we can get somewhere. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Hoshea is captured by the king of Assyria for not paying his yearly dues. He's put in prison. And then the Assyrians lay siege to the capital of Assyria. The capital of, 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 I'm sorry, the capital of Israel is Samaria. The capital of Israel is Samaria. Assyria laid siege on Samaria for three years before finally conquering the city. Back then, everybody had a wall around their city for protection. And when an enemy came into attack, it would take, it could take two or three years to get that wall, to, to, to break through the wall, to get to the city, to, to get inside. They'd have their food ready, their supplies and water and all that. And they could last a long time in a siege. They'd use battering rams, the enemy would, whatever it took to fight, finally take down the, the wall, break a, a hole in the wall and get through. And, and finally, Assyria conquers Israel. They break through. And what do they do next? Their policy was, okay, we've conquered this people. Let's deport them back to Assyria. That's what they did. All the places mentioned in verse 6, Hala, the Haber River, cities of the Medes, they're scattered widely over the Assyrian Empire from east to west, all over the place. And so they're, they're transplanted from their own country to Assyria. Think about that. It had to be an extremely traumatic experience. Put yourselves in their shoes for just a minute. Imagine if an enemy came to America and, and, and you were forcibly taken from America and placed in another country that you don't know anything about at all, all you hold dear is, and all you, all you, all you love is, is gone. Your life is, gets shaken to its very core. Everything changes in your life. The routine you were in is over with. Uh, you're not going to be going down to uh, Chick-fil-A anymore. You know, whatever routine you had is over. You're in a strange land. You have a different language. You hear people talking. You don't understand what they're saying. Your position in society is at the bottom rung of the ladder. You're nobody in this country. You have to start all over again. And whether you get to see your own homeland or not again is up for grabs. You don't even know what's going to happen. That's what happened to Israel. After all this time of judgment, of, of, of warning, they are now exiled. The northern kingdom is exiled. Not Judah, the southern kingdom, still in their land. The northern kingdom of Israel is exiled. All right. Number two, the reasons for the exile. Verses 7 to 23, the reasons for the exile. I bet you could tell me before we even look at this passage what the reasons are. Why did they get exiled? I bet you could tell me, you should know by now, after all we've said about this, why did God remove Israel from their own land? Well, we'll go over these quickly because you've seen them time and again. Number one, 
They spurn the Lord's goodness. They spurn his goodness in two ways. First of all, they forgot about the Exodus. And secondly, they forgot about the conquest of Canaan. They forgot about the Exodus. Look at verse 7. Now this came about, here's the reasons why. This came about, this exile, because sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other, go other gods. This is a point repeatedly made in the Old Testament. The Exodus was a tremendous miracle of God. Obviously, it couldn't be explained in any other way other than God's power. It was a miraculous event in freeing people for his people from Egypt. Did the people remember that? Did they appreciate that over the years? Did they think, wow, I remember that time when the Lord rescued us from Egypt with this great miracle? No, they didn't do that. They're, they're too busy worshiping other gods. They're sinning, and so as a result, they sinned against God. They, don't, they didn't care about that. They spurned his goodness. In a second way, they forgot about the conquest of Canaan. Verse 8, they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. They, back when Israel was commanded to go into the land of Canaan, Israel, Joshua led them, but it was the Lord who drove out the enemy. That's what it says again and again in the Old Testament. The Lord is the one who drove them out. This is, God gives them this land. It's his gift, and they are... They're going to lose this gift from God because they don't remember what he did for them. They don't care that he did that for them. They have no interest in that at all. They spurn his goodness in both of these areas. So they spurn the Lord's goodness. Number two, the second reason why Israel was in exile, went to exile, is they followed the wrong model. We saw this last week. They followed the wrong model, verse 8. They walked in the customs of the nations and of the kings of Israel. Old customs from all the other nations. New customs introduced by the kings of Israel. Every custom except for one custom, the custom of following the Lord. They did all that. And their model was not the Lord. Their model was pagan nations, godless kings. And they deliberately chose to go this way. So the Lord said, okay, you want to go that way? I'll send you that way. The third reason they went in exile, they worshiped false idols. You could have told me that. We've seen that again and again and again every week. And that's, that idea is scattered throughout this section here. They followed false idols. Look at verses 9 through 12. Sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars, an asherim on every high hill, under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places, as the nations did which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not do this thing. Now, this has been a major theme of 2 Kings, this idea of idolatry. Um, and first in verse 9, it's, it tells us about the prevalence of idol worship. It's all over the place. It says, from watchtower to fortified city, they built high places. In other words, from the smallest of places to the largest of places. In Israel, they had... Places where you could worship idols, high places. Literally, Israel became a land of idolatry, a land given over to idolatry. And most of these idols we've seen before, like the Asherim, we've explained that. But let me point out just a few things regarding idolatry, things that we haven't necessarily seen before or we don't see often. Look at the middle of verse 15. The middle of verse 15. And they followed, you see where it says, and they followed, and they followed vanity and became vain. See that? Verse 15, and they followed vanity and became vain. It's talking about idols, or put it another way, easier translation maybe to grasp. 
they followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. They followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. We like to say, uh, we have a saying, you are what you eat. We say it all the time, you are what you eat. That's true in a nutritional sense, and in a health sense, you are pretty much what you eat. In a spiritual sense, who or what you worship is what shapes the person you become. Whatever you're worshiping is what's going to shape you, the person you're going to become. The theological word book of the Old Testament puts it like this. Every person takes on to some degree the character and nature of the God he worships. Think about that. Every person takes on to some degree the character and nature of the God he worships. The Lord's goal for his people is in Romans 8, 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. The Lord is guiding his children to become like Christ. That's what his goal is. And the more we worship Christ, and the more we love Christ, and the more we think upon Christ, and the more we study Christ, and the more we glorify Christ, and as we look at the scripture, we see him in the scriptures, the more we're going to become like him. That's his goal. And the less we do so, the less we study Christ and think about Christ, and the less we give our attention to the things of the world, the more we give our attention to things of the world, the less we look upon Christ, that's going to hinder us from that goal of becoming like him. That's the whole problem right there. You know, the Lord's going to work on us, yes. He's going to work on his people, that is, to make us like Christ. But we need to cooperate. The problem is our, our cooperation level is not always what it should be. But think about that. What, will we, what we become... We become like what we worship. We become like, what we, whether that's Christ or something else, that's what you're going to be molded into. Notice another fact about idolatry. Look at verse 16. At the end of the verse 16, it says, They worshipped all the host of heaven. And all these, all these verses in here, like I said, idea of idolatry is scattered throughout. They worshipped the host of heaven. Back then, the people associated the sun and the stars and the moon and the planets with other gods. So they considered them as gods, so they bowed down and worshipped them. So they served the creature, right, instead of the creator. And look at verses 21 and 22. When, he, when the Lord had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Notice when they, the kingdom was first divided. They made Jeroboam the king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them. The biggest culprit... When it comes to idolatry, in this Old Testament setting is Jeroboam. We see that name again and again and again. It keeps cropping up. He is the guy who made the golden calves in Bethel and Dan, drove Israel away from following the Lord. That's what it says. He drove Israel away and he made them commit a great sin. How would you like to be accountable for that before God? You're responsible for driving many away. And so they worship false idols. There's a fourth reason for the exile. They resisted God's prophets. This whole section is about why. Why they have, were exiled. They resisted his prophets. Look at verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, <clears throat> Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers <clears throat> and which I sent to you through my servants the prophets. However, they did not listen. They stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. It wasn't like they, were war they weren't warned. They were warned. God always uses spokesmen to warn people of the judgment to come. He always has. And there's a good many prophets in First and Second Kings that have even paying attention. Prophets prop up from 
all over the place. I'm not talking about just Elijah and Elisha. Several prophets. Sometimes at the most unexpected times, a prophet comes into the scene and sometimes appears to the most unexpected kings, the most evil of kings, because the Lord keeps reaching out to them and they keep rejecting him. They're given fair warning by the prophets, but they refuse to listen. Fifthly, they rejected God's word. God's word, verse 15. They rejected his statutes, his covenant, which he had made with their fathers, and his warnings, which, which he warned them. They followed vanity, became vain. They went after the nations <coughs> which surrounded them, <coughs> concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord, their God. They made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They rejected the words of the prophets, but more specifically, you see, the, the, at the root of it, they rejected the word of God. They wanted no part to do with the word of God. It was the whole problem. Look at the uh, statements there. They rejected his statutes, his covenants, his warnings, the commandments of the Lord. Couldn't be any plainer. The reason, one of the reasons why they were exiled was because they rejected the word of God. And then another reason, they practiced divination. Verse 17, made their sons pass and daughters pass through the fire. That's more idolatry. Practiced divination and enchantment, sold themselves to do evil inside the, the Lord, provoking him. If a, if a person gets into serious idolatry and he disobeys the word of God and disobeys God's spokesman repeatedly and he sells himself to do evil, it's not far away. It's, not, it's only a, a stone's throw away to get involved in the occult. And people wonder, well, why did that person get involved in witchcraft and all this? They rejected God, rejected his word. It goes with the territory. After a while, you'll consider no evil forbidden. And they didn't. And Judah's not exempt either. Look at verse 19. Also Judah, we're talking about Israel here, but also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God. They walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. Verse 20 is a summary statement. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, inflicted them, and gave them to the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. If this has reference to Judah and Israel... It's pointing to a future time because Judah is going to go into captivity as well later on down the road. Like I said, the torpedoes have been fired. And the ships are sinking. The bottom line, these people rejected the Lord, and so he rejected them. That's what it says. Ten tribes of Israel are carried away into Assyria, which is northern Iraq today. Carried away. All the reasons are related to the Lord. They just defied him, defied his character and his person and his word and his will. You know, our lives as God's people revolve around the Lord. Everything we do revolves around Him. It's His will. It's His word. We're always worried about that. We're always concerned about that. What we do, we do in relationship to the Lord. Never forget that. These are the reasons why the Lord sent Israel into exile. Thirdly, notice the chaos after the exile. <clears throat> chaos after the exile. This is verses 24 to 41. <clears throat> I'm speaking of religious chaos, total and complete religious chaos and confusion. Why? Well, first of all, there was a lack of biblical instruction. A lack of biblical instruction for the people, the, reset, the people resettling the land. Look at verse 24 through 28. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and Sepharvaim. These are all places north of Israel. And settled them into the cities of Samaria in place. They did this in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile 
in the cities of Samaria, they don't know the custom of the God of this land. So he has sent lions among them. And behold, they kill them because they don't know the customs of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away in exile and let him go and live there. Let him teach the, the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Assyria resettles people from places near like Hamath, which is not all that far from Israel, and then far away like places in Babylon, which is I think eight or 900 miles away, bring all these different foreign peoples in and they settle them. Imagine as foreigners now settling into the land of, of Israel, land of Samaria, in place of the sons of Israel. Some Jews were apparently left there because 2 Chronicles 34, 9 refers to the remnant of Israel after the exile in places like Manasseh and Ephraim. Apparently some Jews were still there and it's assumed that Jews intermarried with the Samaritans because of this. They intermarried, although that's never stated in the Bible like that. But it's assumed that that happened. No doubt that did happen. At any rate, Samaria is now filled with foreigners. They don't worship the God of the land. They don't worship the God of Israel. They pollute the land with their own version of religion, their own brand of paganism. This is the land of Israel. Think about this. This is the land of Israel where the Lord was to be worshipped, something Israel failed to do. These foreign peoples coming to the land, they don't have the first clue, not the first clue about the Lord, not the first clue about his word. They know nothing about it. They come from a background of false idols, which varied from country to country. And just like Psalm 36.1 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They didn't fear God, didn't know who God was, didn't care about God. The only people who truly fear the Lord are, are the Lord's people. No one else fears God. Remember that when you're witnessing the people. They don't fear God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this resettlement of the population didn't happen overnight. Could be that in the absence of people for a while was a transition that because the land was absent of people, there was lions that moved in and, took and, and started to roam freely. Can you believe this situation? Imagine living there at that time. However it happened, the text says this very plainly, the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. Now we talk about God's sovereignty over people, but have you ever thought about God's sovereignty over animals? He's sovereign over animals as well. And this is not the first time in First and Second Kings that God has used lions as a form of judgment. It's, been happening, it's happened a couple times. First Kings, First Kings 13 is one example. People don't like to think in terms of God using harsh judgment, do they? They don't like that. We talked to a guy the other day, and uh, he didn't want to think about God being a God of judgment at all. People don't like to think about harsh judgment of God. God would never be a God of harsh judgment, would he? He would never do that. My God would never do that, people say. But he's not, he's, he can and will be a God of harsh judgment when he deems it necessary. He's not beyond that at all. Hell itself is the most severe form of judgment, is it not? Think about that. He sends lions here. What about hell? That's far more severe form of judgment. The interesting thing is the assorted foreigners in Israel figure it out. They figure it out. They say to themselves, wait a minute. They know that God, they don't know who God is, is sending lions in. They figure it out. And they tell the king of Assyria that, hey, we got problems here. We need you to help us out. What they don't know is that God is sovereign over every land, not just Israel. They say the God of this land. No, he's the God of every land. In verse 26. But they realize the need for proper instruction of how to worship the Lord. They realize their need for that. We better get a priest to teach us how to worship God. Now, isn't that weird? You have to wonder about the priest somewhat also. 
Because verse 28 says, he taught them how they should fear the Lord. That sounds great. The problem I have with the, this particular priest that comes in is this. He also decided to live at Bethel. Well, that's where they worship golden idols, at, golden calves, the golden calf. So I, I don't know if this guy's a compromiser or what he is. But he did teach them how to worship the Lord, how to fear the Lord. It does say that. So we'll go with that. That's what, we won't speculate any further. That's what it says. You know, we have a unique situation here in, history, in the history of Israel. Very unique. Israel, which should have been missions headquarters for the Gentile world, has now become a, a mission field. They, they've been a mission field for years, as a matter of fact, because they failed miserably to reach out to anybody. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And they've become, more than that, they become a foreign mission field. Since there's populated by foreigners now. How bizarre is all this situation? And these people realize, since when do lost people realize and ask for a missionary to be sent to them? Where does that ever happen in history? It happens here. We need you to send somebody here to tell us about God. So we'll get it right. Of course, their motive was not to be killed by lions. Isn't it crazy how everything is becoming totally reversed and it gets, it's going to get worse as you read this chapter? If only Israel had been the light they should have been. If only they had searched, sensed the urgency to be a light to the Gentiles they did not, they themselves even failed to respond to God. How do they expect to get anybody else? You know, I used to be, I used to hear this statement, either you are a missionary or you are a mission field. You ever heard that? I haven't heard it in a long time. Either you are a missionary or you are a mission field. Either you need to have the gospel of Christ preached to you because you were lost in your sins and on your way to hell, or you are a believer, and, you, and if you are, then guess what? You're duty-bound to preach the gospel to somebody else. You're either in one category or the other. We may not all be great evangelists, but all of us can do our part. There's a child running in the hallway back there. Uh, if, I don't know. If, yeah, somebody's with me. <laughs> this is Joel. <laughs> Stephen's with me. We have to do our part to evangelize. But the situation here is so surreal. The pagan people read, realize their need for what we call biblical instruction. We need biblical instruction. They didn't say it that way. Too bad Israel didn't see their need for that. The need for biblical instruction will always be in demand whether people know it or not. What do you think the problem with this country is? One of the big problems is with this country is that, and one of the big problems why people, we were talking about this the other day, Stephen and I talking to some of these people out here about the gospel, and they were clueless. Grew up in church, didn't have the first clue about anything, about God or anything else. And uh, Stephen says, what do you think this is? I said, because pastors and teachers over the years failed to teach the Word of God to people. That's why. They haven't done it in their churches. They're doing everything but that. They're doing all kinds of other stuff, entertaining, doing all kinds of stuff. They're not teaching the Word of God. It's no wonder there's such a misunderstanding of the truth in America. And so they, 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 they see their need. Whether they know it or not, they don't understand it, certainly not, but they get this priest to come in and teach them. And then, secondly, the acceptance of syncretism. Yes, syncretism, sorry, I'll explain the word, I've said it before. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. Look at verse 29. But every nation is no better word to describe it, that's why I'm using that word. Every nation still made gods of its own. This is after they were taught to fear the Lord. Uh, and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. 
Every nation in their cities in which they lived, the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. These are gods. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nib Nibhaz. These are all gods they're making. And Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed men from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the customs of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day, they do according to the earlier customs. They don't fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments, which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power, with an outstretched arm, him you shall serve, him you shall bow yourselves down to, uh, for, for, and to him you shall sacrifice. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever. You shall not fear other gods. The covenant that I made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier custom. So while the na these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. Their children likewise, their grandchildren, as their fathers did, even so they do to this day. Now, I've mentioned syncretism before. Syncretism is, si is simply, in this case, where religions are mixing themselves together. All these religions together, worshiping everything like a big hodgepodge together. Let's worship everything. Lions or no lions, people still clung to idolatry. And Israel had set it up, set everything in place to worship idols. And the foreign people just substituted their own brand of idols and gods. Some, some of them are named here. What's more troubling than blatant idolatry is, is this syncretistic worship. I, I can hear people talking now in this chapter. Oh, worship, you can worship the Lord, sure. But worship, you can worship your own gods, too. You can do both. Why not have it all? Do both. They appointed their own priests. <clears throat> they served their own gods in their own way. Even their understanding of the fear of the Lord allowed for inclusivism. Everybody... All gods are equal. We can worship all gods together. We can fear all the gods. That's how chaotic and confusing things got after the exile. So this is, you know, this is nothing's changed. This is still what the Lord, uh, the, the, this is still what the world wants to this day. They love ecumenism. This idea of all religions getting together, ecumenical movement. Let's all get together. You know, different backgrounds, doctrinal backgrounds. Somehow, let's all unite. You know, let's all hold hands, go down by the riverside and sing Kumbaya together and hope that the world becomes a better place. And they still do that today. It's the same thing they did in 2 Kings 17. People do that now. Just add Jesus into the mix and you'll be okay. Talked to a guy one time out in uh, Ocala uh, National Park. We were camping. And uh, it's a long story. He was, they had these hippie conventions. This is a very strange situation. We'll get into all this. And he said, oh, I, I know Jesus. And he kind of turned around and walked off. And I thought to myself, he doesn't have a first clue. Not at all. Just, just add Jesus into the mix of what you do, and it's going to be okay. Now, he's not going to be Lord exclusively. He can share with other deities, though. See, that's how they think. <clears throat> Unfortunately, for the ecumenical movement, the Bible is very strong. And what it says, it's very exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes into the Father but by, but by me, Acts 4.12. There's no salvation in anyone else. 
There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the only name of Jesus. Somebody says, you, you Christians here are narrow-minded. But I say we're only as narrow-minded as the Word of God is. Uh, the broad way will lead to destruction, and many are going that way. People say all roads lead to Rome. Only one road goes to heaven, and that is through Christ. And this secretistic religious chaos is sad in and of itself, sad enough. But what's sadder is in verse 20, 41, look at verse 41. Uh, while these nations fear the Lord, they also serve their idols. Their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, they do to this day. They led their children into this religious heresy. You think lions are bad? What about, what about sending your children and grandchildren to hell because of your hodgepodge religion? It's far worse. What are you teaching your kids? The, the people plunge full steam ahead into syncretism. Well, we come to the end of the chapter. But as I thought about this, another chapter in the Bible kept calling out to me, saying, come to me, and let's talk about this. And I can't ignore it. Let's fast forward about 750 years ahead in time to the first century A.D. This is, 2 Kings 17 is probably 722 uh, B.C. We're in B.C., 722 B.C. Syria captures Israel. Now we're going to move ahead to the first century A.D. Turn with me to John chapter 4. And I want to show you a little tie-in here. We talk about this a little bit from the perspective of John 4, but what about the perspective of 2 Kings 17? You know, our attention has been <clears throat> centered, upon an, uh, centered upon an area called Samaria. We've been talking about Samaria, which if you are in Israel, Gal Galilee's in the far north, Samaria's in the middle, Judea's in the south. Gal Samaria's that middle area, which was the northern kingdom, capital of the northern kingdom back in 2 Kings 17. Samaria, where all the foreigners were put together like a big melting pot. When you get in the New Testament, you find that Samaritans are what? A very hated group of people. Everybody hates them. The Jews hate them because they're all this mixed breed of everybody. John 8, 48, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he says, uh, these Jews are trying to kill him, it says, and he says to them, you are of your father the devil. Well, why do you think they responded to that? Not very good. They said to him, Listen to this, John 8, 48. They said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? You're a Samaritan. And you have a demon. In other words, they're trying to degrade him. And so what do they, what do, they do? They basically use a racial slur, which is calling him a Samaritan like that was a racial slur. They say, basically, you're not one of us, Jesus. You're, not, you're a lowly, worthless Samaritan. On top of that, you're demon-possessed. They throw both those statements together. They hated Jesus so much, the, the best way to express that in their language was to say, you're a Samaritan, nothing better than that. And that's what they thought of Jesus. But what does Jesus do in John chapter 4? He leaves Judea in the south and deliberately goes through Samaria on his way to Galilee in the north, and he stops in and pays them a visit. Now, there was a route that led from Judea all the way in the south, all the way through Samaria up to the north. People could travel that way. Look at John 4.4. 4. It says he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Was that because he had to go straight from south to north and it was the quickest way? D.A. Carson says, geographical reasons dictated that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because of geography, that was the quickest way. Some people have said, well, Orthodox Jews went around Samaria. They didn't go through Samaria because they considered it unclean. And other people say, no, that's not true at all. And this becomes, a, like everything else, becomes a big debate. So forget all that right now. We'll talk about that one day. 
But I will tell you this, regardless of the geographical necessity or not, I believe, and I have no doubt, and I know for sure, Jesus had a divine reason for going through Samaria. Without a doubt, he did. Let's read, and all I'm going to do here is read this chapter, for the most part, most of it, and make very few comments on it. Go to John chapter 1, connecting what we've already seen in 2 Kings 17. Think about that. John 4, 1. Therefore, not John 1, John 4, 1. Therefore, the Lord knew that Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went, away, went again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, a major city, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria, no telling what her background evolved, to draw water. And the Samaritans had a different religion, by the way, than uh, Israel, Israel did. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away. Now think about this. Jews hate Samaritans. Jesus said to this woman, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. I would have been with that group. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you a living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you find that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? They claimed him as well. Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, and this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship we know for what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father, in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with the woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Look at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard in ourselves for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman says, The Jews don't have anything to do with us. They don't care about us at all. 
But Jesus is not concerned about that. He's concerned about her soul. And verse 42 sums it up. We heard it for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the Jews, right? No, he's the Savior of the world, it says. He came, he came to save people from all cultures, not just the Jewish, from all races, from all religions all over the world, even including the despised Samaritan. Isn't that amazing? In light of 2 Kings 17, we thought it was a total insane situation. It was. But now Jesus is making something that he's re reaching out to them as a mission field, saving people. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8. Acts 1, 7, Jesus is, is ascending to heaven soon. This is right before his ascension. Acts 1, 8, he says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and where? In Samaria. Don't forget about that place. And even to the remotest part of the world. The witness is not confined to the Jews, but to the outcast Samaritans also. Go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8, 1. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and what? And Samaria. Except the apostles. The apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. All the other believers were scattered everywhere, including Samaria. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city, city of Samaria. That's a, he went down to the main city of Samaria. And he began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was much rejoicing in that city. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that, that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Imagine that. Samaria receives the word of God. It has this witness to them. And go to chapter 9, verse 31. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea, in the southern portion of Israel, and Galilee, the northern portion, and Samaria in the middle, enjoyed peace. There's a church in Samaria being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Church has been established in Samaria, and it's growing. Did Israel deserve what it got when they got exiled, exiled into a foreign land? Yeah, they did. 